Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Con Mikalakis, CIO of Statewide Super. Morning, Con. G'day, Alex. How are you? Very well. I th- you know, this is a, a fantastic uh, time to chat to you. You're always very opinionated, always got a lot of views and uh, happy to chat. So I thought we'd start off with where your head is at, you know, given where markets have been and, and just sort of a bit of a, a backdrop before we start you know, digging into sort of the super industry more specifically. Where's your head at? Yeah, wow. Um, it's funny. Uh, well, it's not funny. It's it's really one of these crazy periods. And and what happens is you come into January and you think, well, you know, markets are stretched. It seems like it's overpriced, but this could go on further. Rates were low. <coughs> the economy was slowing. There were talks of perhaps rate cuts. And then... Out of nowhere, it's, I wrote this in my last quarterly, it's almost like the butterfly effect. You get something in a wet market and then it spirals out of control and here we are facing our first global mini depression in 100 years or 80 years, um, which has some terrible effects. I mean, basically, the world had to make a choice, including Australia, including my hometown, you shut this down, you shut the economy down and you hibernate it for a period of time or do you allow a non-linear virus to um, basically work its, through, work its way through the population with some pretty disastrous effects in terms of health outcomes and then totally wreck the economy down the track. Um, so the decisions were made. Um, it seems to me the right decision. I know there's a little bit of debate whether that's the right decision, but it seems to me the right decisions were made because it is a health crisis that would lead into a real-world crisis. And what we're finding out is um, stopping the global economy for four weeks to eight weeks to 12 weeks, we just don't know. But, you know, we're, what, six weeks, Alex, and going on now, and it's probably another month. It's almost eight weeks, I think, from when, when uh, Conexus sort of went work from home. Um, and yeah, even, okay. ju- even just work from home, I think, has massive ramifications for public transport. People are now not taking it. They're not going to the city. They're not spending money yeah. on coffees. So it's, it's been yeah. quite a long time already. You're watching economic data around the world. You're watching, even in Australia, basically underemployment. 15 to 17%. Um, people wanting a job, the youth in this country is probably underutilising employment. There's maybe 50%, one in two would want a job or would want more from a job. Um, and so the health crisis has hit the economy, which is now, um, and the markets are obviously reacting, trying to forward think that. So it's, it's a really unusual time. Um, for me, the road to Damascus is what do you do when you have genuine market failure across the board? Uh, well, so someone has to step in because um, what we're finding out with a lot of high personal debt or corporate debt or people living their lives is we were probably um, 
not that resilient. Certainly not resilient to stopping our incomes or our livelihoods for eight weeks. And so I think um, the spender or the policymaker or the safekeeper of last resort has to be policymakers. That's central banks lowering interest rates and buying bonds and corporate bonds. And there's a big debate how far they go for financial stability. So at least the market can function albeit it's on life support. Uh, and second, but more importantly, is the government stepping in to help people, help households, potentially even help businesses get through to the other side because we don't know how long this will be. Now, granted, here in Australia, the good news is I think we are close to getting to the other side. But um, when we get to that other side, what shape are we in? What shape is the economy in? What mental capacity do people have? Will they get on a bus? They obviously can't travel. The Australian makeup of the economy, where it relied on um, basically uh, importing labour, international students, we are a trading nation. So there's a lot of questions there that's going to be asked of the country and the world and how we get through this. Let's let's um, go. I was going to stop you and let's go back to to sort of the support that that's there and, and the resilience of the economy. I think you know one one of the things that strikes me after you know such a short amount of time is that we've had such a good run and there was questions back in 2008-9, you know when we where we had the the mining boom that started because China was there and there was questions about you know have we wasted this this opportunity, right? And did we save anything for a rainy day? And it seems as though we haven't. Um, because we can't shut down the economy even for four weeks. Um, and, and so this is one of the things that, you know, concerns me as a, as a country and, and individually, you know, that people don't have savings to last themselves four weeks. And look, Australia's not alone. This is, this is a global issue. But in any case, without savings, there's no, there's no resilience there that, you know, you can have these potential problems, you know. So, so interestingly, you should say that, Alex. So if I look at my parents born in the 30s and, you know, they're, they're late 80s, the, for them there was nothing like a war and a global depression to make them very thrifty. And throughout their lives what they put into us as kids was don't get into debt, pay off your debts, make sure you don't have a lot of debt, which for a classic um, migrant family that I, you know, first generation, you get drummed into it pretty hard. Um, maybe there'll be lessons learned out of this. The problem is then, though, if everyone then decides to save and spends less, we're going to have the paradox of thrift that'll hit the economy and then, um, well, the, as the economists will tell you, there's no demand. There's no demand. Basically, we're going to be operating in a new world where the economy's operating at 90% or 85% of what it used to operate. Um, so we've got to be careful, uh, answer is yes animal spirits lack of demand um, I suspect going forward but um, let's be careful in trying to extrapolate too much I think everyone's been cooped up so long they can't wait to get out and have some fun as well um, so we'll see what happens oh look for- but are we resilient are we resilient mm. there was a lot of private debt there was a lot of household debt if you look at Australia and the, and, and the, and the short answer is and we have these global supply chains and the short answer is no. The, the economy is probably somewhat resilient with government and policy support for a couple of months, but you can't shut something down for six or seven months. 
you will stretch the resources of anything in that time. Oh, look, and I think I think we're definitely seeing that from a financial capital and a, and a human capital perspective. You know, on a financial capital, yes, there's, I think, is it 6 million people now on JobKeeper? Yeah. yeah. This, this and is, so, Job, you, go. you know, uh, again, I'm a recent MMT convert. I think the Jobs Guarantee or JobKeeper is a good thing. It should stay. Uh, job Seeker, sorry. JobKeeper should be expanded to apply to as many people as possible. Uh, I, I just think that when you're going through something like this, the in the world of fiat money, and if you've got your own currency, which Australia has, the US has, the Europe should think about it, Japan's been doing it, um, we can really, we can help people get to the other side. Uh, look, that help is is always, uh, you know, I think a really important part of smoothing out these cycles. I guess the biggest question is, you know, do, do we create zombie companies and zombie style people almost that, you know, think that there's always a handout and how do you then keep the animal spirits on the other side so that we do have a more resilient and more vibrant economy? Because there's been a lot of concern even before this crisis that the Australian economy is very, you know, uh, one dimensional in terms of how it's been trading off the back of China and education and tourism and it needed to diversify its industry base. You know, how, how do we do that when we're sort of n- n- not um, setting up the right incentives is, I guess, one way to sort of put it uh, in terms of government trying to re- re-establish industries and so forth? Well, you know, we've got great university education system. And if universities and education are going to um, get revenue because they haven't really been supported by public spending and governments, they had to go off and get revenue by international fee-paying students, whether it's China, India, Southeast Asia, Indonesia. I hope it still continues post this. Um, I really do. I mean, it's, uh, again, I look at my own home state, South Australia, and I look at the number of international students and what they've added into this city, what they've added to the university, what they've added in terms of a vibrant city, I hope that continues. It's too early to tell, but, you know, I'm sure the universities and the country will find a way um, for international education to continue to thrive. In terms of being um, countries or households being not resilient and too focused on one or two things, I think that's life. What worries me is that if we get on the other side and this drive to what they call economic self-sufficiency, I think that's basically, we can't close the borders. We're an island nation that trades. I don't think you can honestly feel that Australia should be on the road to self-sufficiency. In fact, we probably have the self-sufficiency in some key areas. That's energy and food. Um, The rest, we should trade and barter like we've been doing since we were set up. Look, it's. I think that's always a great piece, and there's and there's a lot of debate around even um, the ownership of some of those key assets, like particularly water rights and some of the food um, has been, you know, th- thought of as how does Australia sort of use that as its backdrop and then start to really back itself. You know, there's there was a lot of questions about the amount of exports of mining and minerals that we used to do, and then we'd buy back these these uh, you know these goods at a, at a much more you know, at a much higher price. Um, and so how can Australia start to do these things? And this sort of building the manufacturing sector back home uh, in, in Australia is, is seen as, you know, one way that we can become some sort of, you know, self-sufficient 
country, but then still continue to trade. And I think that's probably one of the the things that a, no, a number of countries, the US obviously is in a, in a, its own trade war with China and, and more globally as it tries to to rebuild internally. But you know, how does a country sort of stand on its own um, so that it isn't it isn't at threat if you have these sorts of issues, and it isn't at threat where if there becomes other sorts of trade wars that come in there. And this is, you know, for for Australia as a as an economy, you know, one of the things that that's, that strikes me is okay, what do we need to have here? in the Australian hands to some degree, and maybe this is a bit nationalistic, but what do we need to have here so that we are sustaining life of the local people? Um, and so, then what can so we Alex, trade? Let, let me, this is fun. Alex, so we're not going to make cars and planes, right? Mm-hmm. Let's let's just agree we're not going to make cars and planes. So if we've got this red dirt that's up north that everybody wants to use around the world, all power to them, if we can sell it, um, it seems to me cars and planes clusters around some key areas there's there's economic theories on that um i think we continue to strive to be good at what we can do i'm more concerned probably about incredibly high house prices and high personal debt and how we pay that off than how we you know become a a manufacturing country i've no doubt we'll figure that out but, you know, the other thing that worries me into this, is, as we're going into this crisis, we're already hearing we can't afford to do this stimulus. We need to scale it back. We're already hearing, oh, we now need to have trade. We need to be economically self-sufficient. So, you know, the, the students of the, the Great Depression will tell you there was, there was three things that happened. One, they turned the stimulus off too early. Two, the, the central banks... Um, stop p- providing liquidity. I think they're doing a better job this time on that one. So, but the first one's an issue. And three tariffs and 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 protection and nationalism was going up. You're seeing elements of the first and the third. I've to be really careful we don't repeat the same mistake. And sometimes when I read in the media and that we're falling into that, and that really worries me. Don't turn the stimulus off. Let's not get to this arguments of trade barriers, trade wars, economic self-sufficiency. That stuff is 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 basically, you know, you want the world to trade and and where we're, that, this rhetoric's not heading in the wrong place, I think. Oh, look, this, the, I think, I think the, the idea of trade is, is, is still there. I think, I think that there's a question, particularly as it comes to the health factors, um, that, you know, we, we've got the, the security here from, a, you know, a food perspective, from a medical perspective. You know, I think, I think that's sort of the, the fundamental piece. Beyond that, it's always sort of up for grabs. But, you know, let's take it back to the, to the stimulus, stimulus um, piece of the puzzle. Um, and, and you raised, you raised the, house, the house debt. And that's what, you know, there's always been this, this uh, connotation that Australia has just been holes and houses. And, you know, this, this problem around obsession with houses and house prices, you know, how, how do you let that, that bubble sort of deflate slightly at the same time providing the right stimulus in the right areas that, you know, creates entrepreneurship, it creates um, animal spirits as opposed to just status quo, keeping the house prices high, you know, and, and we don't see that evolution of the Australian economy. So we do have high house prices and high debt. Um, just to get back to an early point, the, the, the other thing about the stimulus, the other thing I was worried about this lockout, 
Um, there's an economic crisis, there's a social crisis, and there's a mental crisis, health crisis too, that's worrying. And, and so when people come back into this, the, the, you know, using that term animal spirits, so what does it mean? People will come out of this, they're going to be, hopefully they're raring to go. I really don't know. People have been cooped up a long time um, when, and the shutters aren't coming off completely, right? They're being staged. And so people are being programmed, managed to come back on to a normal economy over the next, well, for the rest of the year, for lack of a better word, right? Mm-hmm. But there'll be no international travel. I suspect international uh, interstate travel will still be fairly limited for a lot for a while. Um, you know, how you go, you can't go to see like me. I want to see a live rock band. You can't see. You know, that's probably not happening. If you want to go and see your friends, you there's going to be like number of people that can go to a bar, have a drink. Um, you probably want to pay off your debts. Has your salary and your being affected, uh, you know, I think I th- my sense is coming back, this, this doesn't come back as quickly because things are being staged and managed and don't forget in all this background, it was a health crisis, we haven't got a vaccine yet, what we've done is slowed this thing, we've hopefully kept it out from, from coming in overseas and now we're managing this, Right. Mm-hmm. And we're heading into winter. So I don't want to be negative, but I'm just trying to be realistic that we are, this is going to be a long, drawn out process. And um, people will want to come back and spend because they've been cooped up, but this is going to take a while to play out, I think. And in that world, what does it mean? Um, you said, what does it mean for innovation? Um, well, interesting, as a super fund, you know, we've in, a lot of us have invested in venture capital. We see a lot of innovative Australians doing things. Um, we're in Brandon, which is a biotech. We've done Airtree, which is VC. We can potentially be looking at one more VC investment this year. There's some fantastic stuff being done uh, in my home state and across the country in, in VC and entrepreneurship. So I don't think, I think that that area will continue, that area will actually grow more and more. And that I'm incredibly bullish about. Well, that's always um, been a historical piece that the, that the startups that come out of these financial crises are some of the most resilient. Um, so that that's, I think that's one of the most exciting things that people you know, particularly if, if you've been laid off or you've you've got some ideas, you know, it's the it's the ability to to take advantage of, for example, some of the job seeker stimulus or job keeper and start thinking about some of these ideas that you've had at the back of your mind for a long time and, and here's the opportunity to to connect up with some friends um and, and you and you're sort of encouraged to go your own way. So you know, this this could restart that that um Entrepreneurial and so, it, and just that you know, the university, the um, the trades, um, the venture capital sector. This is why I'm I'm, I'm very pro higher education, pro technology, pro um, trades, pro TAFE. You know, you want your population skilled or reskilled, and then they can go out and figure this out. Um, so that's why for me. In internally having the country reskilled and making sure our people have the right resources and then the ability for them to figure things out, whether it's within the country or globally, is very important. Trade is a big and trade is part of this. They don't 
you're not doing venture capital. Entrepreneurs aren't just setting up looking for, you know, the local postcode. They're looking to do things that can be applied broadly and hopefully globally. And, and you know, as super funds, we like investing in that because we think that's, um, that's you talk about where does Australia go. That's a key part of where Australia grows, and that is innovation and tech. Absolutely. I think that's a, it's a good transition to sort of the superannuation industry in terms of its role. And, and it's, it's always been, I think, on the sideline to some degree in terms of superannuation being this sort of motherly figure for, for, the, for the economy and for industry. What's, what's your take? I know you've just mentioned VC, but, you know, should that be a bit broader in terms of infrastructure and other sorts of real estate developments? You know, not, not so much just financialized purchase of unit trusts and so th- so forth, but actual development? Um, so, so superannuation is we take people's money and depending on their age group, we invest in a series of investments, whether it's high growth, a default fund, could be growth balance, and we'll get to that in a minute, conservative. And then we take their money and we know that over time that we'll build them a pot of, a pot of assets and then when they retire, they will be drawing on that pot of assets and as they retire and they, and they, and they convert it to income. Now, that income could be income from yields or bond yields or dividends. It could be just progressively selling down their, their pot of money, their assets, right, that they've grown. <laughs> now, we're entering into this new period. We started with the GFC. And this is not a financial crisis, right? This is a health crisis. Now we've got this new... Um, I don't know what they're going to call it, probably some terrible name. Rates are much lower. In fact, zero to negative. We are entering into a really weird period where how we structure assets and how we invest, particularly those that are retired, is far more difficult than what it was, say, 15 years ago when bond rates were 4 or 5%. Now, when bond rates were 4 or 5% and inflation was 3 it was pretty easy sticking to bonds, right? You're going to get a coupon. Life's pretty good. Now, we've got 10-year bonds at what, 90 basis points, and there's corporate bond market. There's going to be – you're going to be taking on corporate risk. You're going to be reaching for yield. It's very – it's a very different world that uh, retirees are inheriting and how they – work through this and how they draw down their income and capital will be a big part. There might be structured investments, but be careful. There's place for annuities, there's place for diversification, but it's a really different world. For the younger ones, that's simple. That's basically you're investing for the long term. Investing for the long term is buying a diversified pool of assets, whether it's shares, infrastructure, property, venture capital, alternative investments, lending pools, whatever that over the next 10 or 20 years will build you that pot of assets. I don't think that game has changed. If anything, it's become perhaps for the younger ones more interesting because, you know, the assets have fallen then the expected returns are probably a lot higher today when they were, say, at the end of December when the all laws was a lot higher. What about on the equity side there for the young people? I know this is a is a pause to the, to the, to the, the general flow, but... Yeah, you know, I, I I totally agree that you know the the challenge for the retiree or the person close to retirement is is really stretched, because now we're trying to convince them that they they need to you know take on almost more risk effectively 
to be able to earn the return that they could have got 10 years ago. Yeah, or they have to uh, accept that they will be drawing down on their assets, mm. right, selling down on their assets. But, you know, selling down on their assets, especially in these choppy markets, can also, um, you know, really be a difficult time. If they've, if, you know, the sort of a more conservative option or a bucketing approach, that's certainly immunised the fall. Like if the markets are off 20 30%, a bucketing approach is off, I don't know, say 5 to 6%, mm-hmm. and so maybe less. And so that has really helped in this market. And a lot of people equate uh, a 1% fall in the Australian market is not equivalent to their diversified portfolio. Mm-hmm. For the younger ones, though, Alex, I actually feel sorry for them in, in a worse way because um, this is why I believe in stimulus. When we come out of this, we need to have economic stimulus. We need to create aggregate demand. They want to work. They want to go back to school. They want to pay off their debts. They want to buy a house. They want to work. And if there's no demand, right, and, and people aren't employing, they get affected. We've also, some of them who were part-time or not fully employed didn't qualify for JobKeeper. And then we pushed them on to job seeker, right? Mm-hmm. Some who were not even in job seeker have even fallen up out of the workplace, right? Then we said to them, okay, you can access your super because you've got nowhere to go, which is fair enough. So we, we've basically asked them to take away their savings in terms of super to get them through this period. Now they want jobs. They want a stimulus. And, and again, I get back to my sadly MMT as you would call me arguments you need to support people through this because that's what they want i mean fine they've taken out of their retirement pot um for now to get through this but they want jobs they want jobs they want income um i'm not a policy maker but the idea of sending money cash through like um in rub did during the gfc would have been a much better approach to help people and, and I know some people said, well, what are they going to do with the cash? Well, what are they going to do with the cash? There's still bills, there's council rates, there's, there are things to pay and they still want to order some food. They may have some educational courses, they may have some debts to pay. They just needed the money now. Now the money, the earlier the money got, they need the money now. So when this gets through, they have a chance to get on the other side. I think I so think I think the younger people may have been screwed over even more than the older ones. Well, that's that's one of the things that that I that I was sort of going to ask you about because I think this MMT style thinking of 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 giving cash at the moment to everyone is still going to support the people who hold a lot of the assets because that money is going to flow through and, and support the economy and that's going to typically then end up supporting um, the people that, that do have most of the money. It's going to help support bond prices that they have. It's going to help support the house prices that they have. It's going to just help support the, the, the broader economy. So I'm wondering if that just, you know, exacerbates the, the problem of, of the divide between the younger people who, you know, they get a little bit of stimulus, but that a little bit of stimulus is not going to help them as much as the people that have significant assets. Oh, I think they need it more. I think the stimulus package, if it's if it's worked well and appropriately, the young need it more than the old, and that's why you want to have job seeker uh, high. That's why you want job keeper broader. That's why you would do things to make life easier for the for 
the young, those at uni, those about to leave uni, the, the ones that are not at uni, that have lost their, their work, they need help now. And the stimulus package is disproportionately more important for them than anyone else. Oh, look, I, I, I agree. I think I think it's just it is more important, but at the moment the way it's sort of distributed, there's no there's no real difference by by age or or, or groupings. And so that was sort yeah. of the the impact. It's like how how do you make sure you help to reduce this this inequality? Um, because you've got people that um, need to get that rung up, and I think you're absolutely right in in that. You know, when you're when you're young, your human capital gets you know gets affected quite a lot because you don't have the yeah. track record, and you're looking for a track record. If you have been out of work for six months or nine months or twelve months, yeah, hysteresis, it, as you know, the mm. whole hysteresis. Once you're out of job for a long time, that's not a good thing, right? Mm. Um, and that's the other thing is as we hibernate this economy, as they come online, you know, um, unemployment's going to go up really quickly, and unfortunately, history tells you it doesn't go down. It's sort of gradually decays and that's that's not good that's that really again it, it falls disproportionately on the young and disproportionately on those later on in the workplace who don't come back and that's the real um that's the real crime but just just getting back to my other bug because we've done enough economics just, you know in terms of superannuation you said what what where's our head and what one of the key things i think the industry needs to sort out that i'm really, and I'm changing tracks on you here, Alex, so sorry about that, is um, this growth versus defensive nonsense needs to be sorted out. The sooner the better. Um, the other thing this crisis has exposed is what's a growth asset, what's a defensive asset. Um, everyone's got their views on this. This is one of the things where everyone in the industry, it doesn't matter if you're retail, uh, industry funds, self-managed, um, advisor, uh, regulator, everyone's got different views on what's a growth asset, what's a defensive, how we classify it. And, and I know um, within Connexus, David Bell, I think, is doing some work. The work Dave's, David's doing is probably the most important thing in the next, I hope, coming out of this crisis, that we all sign up to a proper standard or a standard gets developed where labelling of the member investment choice options and how we say what's a growth asset or defensive asset that the industry gets together, puts aside its personal biases and develops a consistent framework. This is really, I think this is really important because I think the punters out there and how we've labelled it, they've had enough. Uh, look, it's, um, it's the whole gameplay in terms of what, you know, what this... Um, portfolio looks like this my my super or default portfolio and this this gaming of the of the assets that sit underneath that I think is also part of that that conversation. Yeah, um, you know, you said where you know earlier you asked in this where's my head at? I think this is really important that this year as the year progresses, all of us need to have a good hard think about how we classify our assets. And it, that even involves whether it's ASIC and APRA coming in. And, you know, APRA's already invoked their version via a heat map. Does the industry collectively take that? Or do we sit down with the regulators and say, can we design something? Um, doesn't have to be mandatory, but we voluntarily sign up to a code that says this is how we're going to do it from now on. And I think that's good. I think this is the right thing to do because it's just... 
there's a lot of really bad playing across this, across the industry on what's growth and income. And some really bad, e e even, I'm going to pick my bugbear, even the future fund, when they put their risk return plots, saying that they're low risk and they have a high proportion of illiquid assets that obviously doesn't move and therefore it puts it makes you on a volatility adjusted basis look less risky all this nonsense has to stop we just have to grow up as an industry and stop doing this this is bullshit sure. and is, and is is there a way to maybe create a proxy to to some of these unlisted assets you know i know i know there's there's an argument to the other side where they say, well, hold on. If you look at the listed equivalent of this unlisted product, we, you know, it, it's moving too much. That's not that's not a fair movement. The markets aren't always efficient. Um, and so, you know, that's why we we value these things quarterly and, and high percent, you know, that the, the, the resulting factor is that, you know, volatility is less. But I, I totally, I totally agree with you. This this hidden risk that's there because you don't value it is a real problem and it's allowing people to game the system. Yeah, and and look, investing in unlisted property, unlisted infrastructure, venture capital, private debt, these assets are fantastic assets to invest in, right? Our members and funds that do this, it, it doesn't matter if it's an industry fund, again, a retail fund, a self-managed fund, I'm just speaking up that the ability to invest in a broader set of the capital market that's available to you is the right approach. Period, right? Mm -hmm. You don't only have to invest in listed assets. That's just nonsense, right? That's mm -hmm. just complete nonsense. Um, but let's have a code that we can all sort of work together. Let's put our personal preferences. And I've been very strong as well. I mean, you said I'm opinionated. I mean, I can be very opinionated, unfortunately. But let's put our biases aside and let's get a code going because it's just got to stop. I think... I think it's creating confusion and this confusion then creates wrong outcomes um, because the, the, uh, the idea of investing in unlisted or non-listed assets is a good thing, right, for the long term. It's good for the country. It's good for the member. It's a really good outcome, but not if they're misclassified <coughs> or not if people think that there's gaming or there's price gaming or this stuff going on. Um, I mean, I can tell you, I can't speak, I can speak for most super funds. It's really hard to gain when you have independent valuers, frequent valuations. I mean, during the crisis, I can tell you, that was front and foremost. But remember, you have daily pricing and sometimes monthly or quarterly pricing. There is a mismatch, but that's the price of getting a long-term asset and a good long-term return out of this. Oh, that that daily pricing piece is, is I think, one of the, the problems that, that is is trying to exacerbate this issue, right? Where you've got daily pricing of the super fund and then the underlying maybe doesn't price, you know, it prices quarterly or in some cases in this sort of situation, prices monthly. Do, yeah. we, do we need to actually as an industry address that problem? You know, so it's maybe once a month that, that the price is, is done to try and – because you, there's a member fairness piece to all this as to when, you know, when does people enter and, and what are the you – know, when was the price last um, valued? Um. It depends how much you've got and how well it's priced and how conservative you price it. Look, we're in the world of daily pricing. Do, do I think we move away from that? I'm not sure. I don't think we do. Um, um, does that mean you can still accommodate illiquid assets and pricing? I think it can as long as you don't have too much of it. 
and as long as it's priced, and if you think the pricing gets out of out of whack, you can always call the valuers in and reprice it. I think in market stresses, whether markets go up a lot or down a lot, it does expose leads and lags in the in the game. But again, super is supposed to be a long term investing game. Um, so I hope we we have a classification for that. The, the final element in this in the crisis, of course, is. And I think people have talked about is, you know, um, there was, of course, a change in rules and how you can early access your super in times of crisis. I actually don't want to comment on that. I think I think that it, that's been announced. It's got to happen. And, and as I see, most funds are now diligently working a way to price this. But I think the system was brought on. You fund a balance. You get members in. You invest for the long term. And they have the option to either leave your fund or switch anytime, any day. And what this crisis is different to the previous one during the GFCs, most now you can do it online. And we've done a lot of work at Statewide looking at how switching behaviour activity, how things happen. And it's clear that uh, people watch the night news, see large movements in markets, and you can see the behaviour in the next day. Add that with the with a health crisis that we're having today, plus um, early access, you can see that the industry was worried or straining that this will be what it could be. But again, we're in it so far, it seems to be manageable. But I hope this doesn't lead to, oh, we're not going to invest for the long term or we're not going to invest in these long term assets that are not listed that members can get for really good prices and make good money on. Yeah, I, that that will take the, this conversation in a whole a whole different way. But there's there's, there's definitely a, an issue there where people are you know were initially thinking that this is superannuation, they won't receive it for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, to now, here's this honeypot you can just dip in when the economy gets gets strained. Um, I think that that's done probably a, a lot of damage to to the broader you know theory the the mentality that people have had about and the relationship they've had to their super so yeah that's for another podcast but yeah. uh, i was more interested in the defensive growth and what that means um and i think this is really important it's really really important that we sit down and have an honest conversation across all all the actors in the game what is a defensive asset what is a growth asset and uh, i hope david bell leads that because he's the right he's got the right temperament and he's a good he's a good guy but um, if we can get a code signed up on this, that'll be a really good outcome for the for the industry. Just just going back to my point on on that on that code around sort of these these uh, the unlisted piece of that puzzle. You know, I suggested sort of a, a proxy of risk because at the moment, you know, you don't see any references to risk or you know volatility on the in these funds everything that you see you know whether it's on a billboard in a bus or on a website for any of the super funds it's literally only the return it gives you no details about how those returns um vary and, and unfortunately unfortunately in a competitive open architecture world that's where it's happened but all the options have wristbands mm-hmm. they have to actually um the industry signed up to these standards risk classifications, how many years you can have a negative return. Um, you're right. Um, and then we have the labels, so, you know, you know, like statewide, we call it a growth fund. Our growth fund would look like a balanced fund in another person's um, area. 
which would look like a you know a high growth fund in another person's area. Um, we we got to have you just got to get some standards out uh, of how what we call the the, the various options. Um, and unfortunately, um, in open architecture and in a competitive environment. You can't control. Yeah, that's right. People just put the number, five-year number. This is what it is. Um, I thought we'd learned from the GFC about returns and risk. Clearly, it was forgotten. It's going to happen again. People are going to be a lot more uh, cognizant, but I, but I can almost guarantee it, Alex, within three or four years, it's going to be forgotten. Again. You can see... That's just individual investor behaviour, sadly. Oh, look, I think it always goes away, right? There's always an initial reaction to to past performance. You know, you look at past performance and see a number and you've got no idea about the range of outcomes that that fund has had over the year and you, and you make a yeah. decision. Yeah. Um, particularly yeah. because such a large proportion of the of the country is, you know, unadvised. Um, yeah. The, 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 the other thing too, um, the ones that, that have outperformed prior to the crisis – then there'll be a new set of funds that, are, that will outperform during the crisis and then there will be a new set of funds that will outperform after the crisis. But I bet London to a brick, everyone's going to say, pre-crisis, these were the funds you're going to focus on. During the crisis, these are the ones that, that lost you less money. And then after the crisis, these are the ones that have emerged. I think, you know, you're not going to stamp that investor herd behaviour. I think that just happens. Let's let's dig into the the actual portfolios, and um, I sort of touched on a little bit further back in terms of you, you mentioned about where, where a young person should invest today. You know, in terms of their their format of, of equities and infrastructure and property and VC and so forth. You know, w- one of the things that's always struck me is that you look at the SAAs of a lot of these funds, and yes, they're SAAs and they should be long long term and so forth. But do do they need to change more? Do you know how how do we try to take into consideration? Um, more of the valuations that are out there because I, I know a lot of funds say, well, we're not trying to market time and so forth, but there also has been quite a bit of academic research that looks at um, equity returns after you hit certain valuations and what does that look like for the next five or seven years? Yeah. Are we too static in, in the industry in terms of you know how the SAAs sort of are created and, and uh, uh, the update period? Uh, uh, look, I can only speak for statewide. What our SAA and targeted is is mm-hmm. very different. Um, um, so we have we, we have like a long term strategic that never changes, and then we have what we call sort of medium term, and then our actuals have to be close to that medium term. They're quite a bit different to the the ta- the um, sort of the, the naive SAA. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of market timing. You know, when the VIX is 50 or 60 or 70 and markets are moving down, up and down 5 7%, market timing, I actually think it's got worse, not better. We're seeing the performance of, of these funds. I don't know. They're flipping coins. If anything, it's made me more. Look, take the awards. It went up to 7.2. It went down to 4.4. Where is it now? 5.3. Who's played that well? Maybe there's a cast of a million people. How many flipped head 23 times? You know, the, the old joke, they're down to two or three. Are they now they're market gurus? Well, mm-hmm. was it skill or was it luck? Um, 
I'd say it's probably more luck than skill. Just be careful on that. I think I think in crisis people get more short term and they trade a lot more. You're seeing a lot of that, a lot of that. And what you actually want to do is think more longer term as it's shorter term. So people hoard cash. People want to want to trade a lot more. I think that's the wrong approach. I think you want to stick to your long term strategy. And sure, if markets fall. We'll use that to sort of anchor in. But but trading. Good luck with that. Oh, right? look, I I, I, I agree with you. I think I think it's not about trading. It's more sort of the question of, you know, how to how to balance off the the growth perspective of the portfolio versus capital preservation. Yeah. Because you know you can have the frequency of losses, and maybe it's just some small frequency. But if, when you have a drawdown of twenty or thirty percent, that's a very hard place to get back from. And so, I'm so. I think that's a fascinating question. So one of the things we've been asking ourselves and and we looked across the industry is we know people, our members sort of have somewhat pro-cyclical behaviour, right? They hurt, they sort of invest in when markets are falling, are rising and sort of get out when markets are falling on, but not big amounts, but call it, especially in big events, say two or anywhere between one and a half and 3% of funds under management. Mm-hmm. Plus you've got Aussie dollar hedges. One of the things we all have to consider is maybe that terrible term that no one wanted to touch, tail hedging or portfolio hedging or overall hedging where you are giving up a bit in the good times to have insurance in the bad times and treat it as an insurance premium. Not that the horse has probably bolted, we don't know, but we are certainly, uh, we did a bit of work on that and we chickened out. We're going to go back and look at it and say, that may be worth doing. We just want to understand the price of that and um, is it worth doing? Is this, is this a specifically a tail hedge you're talking to? It's, it's some sort of port, overall portfolio hedge mm-hmm. where if you get, you get an element of pro-cyclicality in your portfolio in terms of flows, mm-hmm. that you can somewhat hedge it out. Okay. Um, the second one is the one that's more feasible, and that is how can you diversify your portfolio? How can you run better diversification? And that means uh, putting on strategies or upping areas that are somewhat orthogonal to your sort of risk or equity positions. Mm-hmm. Now, in the old days, that was easy. That was cash and bonds. But now we're starting from zero cash and almost zero bonds. So the questions there have to be answered differently. And we're looking at very, again, various strategies. Could be long, short investing. Could be some sort of volatility type investing. We're looking at sort of different types of strategies and or holding more cash um, that would, uh, you know, sort of get you through this. Are you are you potentially questioning the the old school mentality of, of SAAs and, and and creating portfolios with buckets? You know, to the the equities, you know, uh, fixed interest, real assets. You know, is, has that sort of almost run its course given where we're sitting in markets today? I think it's a good ballast. Mm-hmm. So I think that's your North Pole, right? I'm not a sailor. That's your North Pole, but the straight line to the North Pole is not your SAA, mm-hmm. right? You may have to, for currents, winds, you know, deviate a bit to get there. Yeah, I hope that makes no, sense. No, no, it does. Look, I, 
So I've I've been looking at the the you know the historical traditional asset allocation that we were taught at university and when you do the CFA program and it's very sort of you know bucketed approach but I start to question more and more of late you know is that really the best best approach you know should I should I think about a portfolio that can sort of be almost you know a type of all weather and I use that in quotations where it's maybe you know, 20% equity, 20% fixed income, 20% commodities, 20% cash, and 20% um, real assets, right? That's one way of thinking about it. The other way is, should I just create five really unique strategies to put together? You know, some sort of a macro piece, some sort of a long vol piece, a long short. Yeah, uh, a trend and you're following. seeing that. I think you're seeing that within funds. Look, uh, the all-weather fund, you can get that already, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're going to see a lot more... Um, for good or bad, you're going to go see a lot more alternatives pipe up again. Perhaps more liquid alternatives that um, that are different to um, your traditional bond or equity mm-hmm. type um, return streams. Doesn't mean you get it right. There's no guarantee in this business, but you're going to see a lot more liquid alts coming through, and you may see different approaches to how you hedge volatility or how you hedge portfolio volatility and how you size that up or you might just see inertia and say from time to time you have to expect your portfolio to be down 10 or 20 percent it happens every turn 10 to 12 years it is what it is just make sure you have enough diversification to get through it and carry on it's that diversification piece that it still keeps sort of reiterating in my mind of, you know, if your traditional diversification doesn't work, then uh, then that's you, know, you come back to the old issue of what other alternatives are there, you know. Yeah, and, and you've got to remember, like, with statewide, again, we, the My Super Growth, right, um, it was down 9% in March when markets were off 20 and that was riding off, you know, also riding down the liquids infrastructure. It's up. I don't know, in February, uh, sorry, in, in April, it was up just over 3%. Um, you know, the lower risk options were only down a couple of percent. Maybe you just have to accept, you, you, you're taking risks, you have to accept that every so often you're going to have a really bad quarter, six-month year where you're up in, in, down anywhere between 5 and 15% because how are you going to get your 7 or 8% return or your 6% return long-term? is you're going to have these drawdown periods and the key to surviving these drawdown periods is make sure you're you're diversified enough in terms of your hedging, your cash, your bond profile so you can fund all of that because importantly you want to be leaning into these damn markets when they're going against you and you need to show a little bit of courage. I think you've just un- unveiled the, the whole communication issue, right? So this the, the idea of leaning in is, yes, the fund can do it, but then you've also got to take your members on that journey. Yeah, so- yeah, 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 yeah. And again, if I, I can only speak for myself. I've almost been doing weekly video calls uh, on our web, uh, lots of writing, um, communicating, because we think it's important, particularly for young ones. We did a lot of calls for people age between, interesting, between 25 and 41, where they were worried and we were saying, you've got time, uh, um, it's, it's okay. You've actually got time and you're super to recover this. And I use myself as an example. Look, when I joined Statewide, we had the GFC. I was the young age of 42. I didn't move my super. I stayed in the default option. It recovered 
and it's done okay. Here we are again. Now I'm going to be 54 this year. I've still stayed in the option. It's, you know, it's got time to recover as well. Hopefully I'll retire in about, I don't know, 12 years or something. But um, but those who are old and close to the retirement, that's a different conversation. It's it's interesting because, yeah, for me, what what's also come out of this this period is is the you know, the communication for each of the funds is almost as important as investment decision-making because if, if your communication yep. isn't right to your members, they can start to switch. They can start to do things that then causes, you know, problems to your portfolio. So you can't actually achieve what you what you wanted to set out. Um, during the crisis, um, we, we developed like a, an action plan um, and we moved our IC from quarterly to weekly and, and it was the following, member switching, asset allocation, unit pricing, uh, communications, um, capital calls, uh, to be discussed, hedging, um, unlisted valuations, preserving cash. Uh, I think I've forgotten one or the other, but I'm just, it's Saturday morning, mate, so it's, the memories, the memory style. But these are the, the, the that's we've been running that since March, and that's how we think. Um, and now we're as the markets are somewhat better, we're thinking of you know moving away from that. But a liquidity ratio. That was the other mm-hmm. thing. So you know, um, what was the liquidity ratio? What what, uh, what can we fund? What does it look like over the next couple of months? And stress testing. That was the final one. So and plus stress testing. These are the stuff that hold true to form. And if anything, communications was a lot, surprised me, it was a lot higher in doing this. We've been stress testing for a long time, but the communications piece was actually the one we actually ramped up a lot higher through our marketing team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's, um, it's something that is always important to also keep people on the journey, you know, to keep people on the journey and, uh, and to sort of look beyond the sort of the volatility that's in markets. And that can also tie back to, what people are actually buying, you know, and, and that could could tie back the super funds to sort of their role in supporting the Australian economy. I know that a couple of yeah. funds have used that as the the way they market. You know that your your investment in your super is also investing in Australia, and um, you know this this is the reason to stay for the long term. Yeah, I, I've seen that, but but Team Australia too also means at the individual level that we've we've got your back in terms of returns and a strategy to get you an outcome. So Team Australia is also at the individual. They, members want returns. They want safety of their money. They want to know that you're doing okay so they don't have to worry. Mm. Um, so t- Team Australia helps at the investing level, but it also helps that the members are comfortable with the strategy so the cash is in their appropriate options for their risk and then you can invest for the long term. Mm-hmm. All right, I think that's a, a great place to leave it, and and hopefully we we can we can stop this disruption to normal life. I I did have a a prod from a, a friend within Connexus that said, you know, hopefully Con's doing okay with the suspension of the Premier League, and you know the question was, should Liverpool just be awarded the league title um, in the interim? So I thought I would. Yeah, the only good the- thing is maybe the Scousers get nothing, and <laughs> I'm very happy. <laughs> Fantastic! Thank you very much for your time this morning, Con. Thanks, Alex. You're a good man. Cheers. Thank you for joining us. 
All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.